0: The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you're in the right place every week. We're bringing you interviews, market analysis, breaking down what it means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we'll dive headfirst into last week's crypto chaos, the fallout, From the collapse of embattled crypto exchange FTX and Titanic trading volume we saw in Bitcoin futures ETFs as a result, is crypto facing a real crisis of confidence right now? How can investors hope to weather the storm and regain faith in digital currencies after a blow up like this one? Here's my conversation with Deborah Fuhrer. She's the founder and managing partner of ETFGI, along with Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares. Simeon, uh, lack of regulation over FTX is just driving everybody crazy at this point. But we did have one thing that really stood out to me. Well, we have an, an entity that traded Bitcoin, Bitcoin Futures, in the futures market, record volume. This is your product, operated officially. The prices collapsed, but if you wanted to get in or out at any one time, you were able to do that.
2: Absolutely. So we have BITO, which is the long Bitcoin strategy ETF using Bitcoin futures. We also have BITI on the short side. Both saw tons of volume, both traded well, spreads uh, spreads tight in a tumultuous market.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know what's amazing to me, uh, uh, Deborah, is regardless of the debate on what crypto assets are worth, and some people argue they're not worth anything, and this is a stunning collapse, the ETF market function fine here. Another example of really high stress and the ETF market functioned as it was supposed to.
0: Yeah, and that's not surprising because think back to the time of COVID and high volatility. People thought fixed income ETFs weren't going to work and they did, right? So the ETF wrapper works really well.
1: And why does it work so well? What makes it so efficient? You know, like people said about the bond market, you know, it, well, oh, what, you have these specialty bond offerings, you know, uh, you know bond... Uh, any, any kind of uh, banknotes, for example, or um, various offerings of uh, limited bond trades that were available. And the minute the market gets panicky, the underlyings are not going to be able to trade and the ETF will freeze up. And it turns out that wasn't true. None of that is true. Right. Actually, the, the ETF was the price leader over the underlying. That seems to be the uh, the, the real brilliant insight here that we've gained from the ETF business?
0: So I think it goes back to there is a whole ecosystem and ETFs are highly regulated, right? They're funds that have the added benefit of being listed and traded on exchange. So what's inside of it is highly regulated. And then the authorized participants, the market makers, the trading desks all work together to make sure they work. And they go out and find prices. So that's what happened during the fixed income volatility during COVID the APs go out and find real-time prices to be able to trade. And that's why ETFs were more efficient in pricing than mutual yeah. funds.
1: Yeah. And remember also, you, 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 in a lot of cases, you're not trading the underlyings, You're just trading the, the ETF as a product. That's exactly. an important way to look at it. So it, there was enormous pressure on the SEC and on Gensler, Gary Gensler, and on his predecessors to approve a Bitcoin ETF. He has not been willing to do that. He has said There are aspects of this that are unregulated still, uh, particularly the exchanges. There are fraud and corruption charges out there. He's looking pretty good right now, at least in my opinion. I mean, he's stalling. It looks like it was the right thing to do at this point. Um, What does it do for the chances of a Bitcoin ETF sometime in the future? And what what have we learned about this?
0: Well, I think it is important, though, to look outside the U.S. So in Canada, we have spot... Bitcoin, we have Ethereum, we have Ether, we have a bunch of products in Europe, in Brazil and other markets, and they've all worked well, right? Right. So I do think that the crypto market has moved on from the initial time back in 2013 when the twins wanted to launch a Bitcoin product, right? So I think that it probably would have worked well, but I think right now there's not an appetite to bring it forward. And I don't think during his commission. We're likely to see a Bitcoin, a spot yeah. Bitcoin product. Well, that's a good market. point. But,
1: but what, what about her point? I mean, we, they've got this elsewhere. It seems to be working, even if the market's collapsing. Is there less regulation in Canada, more regulation? I mean, well, the Canadian I think authorities- there's,
2: there's two points that I make first, you know, FTX, a special situation. But remember, the exchange system as a whole for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is still not mature. You know, even if you don't have an FTX thing, there's still the issue of lack of segregation in any Bitcoin exchange in the event of bankruptcy. So there's still maturation that needs to happen there. The other thing that's really important is that the futures market itself has matured very quickly. So everybody wanted to talk about the roll costs when we launched BITO. You know what? They've come down 80% and they're converging right to the textbook solution, which is this is a financial future. You don't have to store oil in tankers, so therefore, the roll cost should equal short-term financing costs. By the way, BitO holds cash to be, quote-unquote, fully collateralized, and therefore, the roll cost offset by the earnings on the cash, and we've been tracking spot Bitcoin very, very closely. So, you know, there's little downside to the futures contract. Right. Well, this is a very important.
1: Point about this is the problem with owning futures contracts. When you roll into them, the commodities have storage costs. You get hit with that, and it, you get decay over time holding the asset. But here, there's nothing to store. There's no. It's just an electronic ledger item, literally.
2: So in and the theory, futures, are cash settled?
1: It, but is there actually a roll cost involved in this?
2: There is, but what the what the textbook says is that the roll cost should be right around that short-term near risk-free lending rate. That's the no arbitrage condition. And Biddo is just a one, it's not a leveraged strategy. So you hold enough cash such that the return should be approximately spot Bitcoin. And therefore that roll cost is offset by the earnings on the cash. And that's what we've been seeing this year as Biddo has tracked spot Bitcoin very, very well.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to distinguish uh, people ask me what 's going on with FTX I want to distinguish here between the blockchain concept, which I am very personally think has tremendous future, reduces financial friction, smart contracts, decentralized finance uh, I think have tremendous potential as a financial disruptor as a technological disruptor, and what 's going on here there 's really two other things going on one is What's the value of cryptocurrencies in general, which obviously, you, you know, does, don't have intrinsic value, so go up and down dramatically. But the other is what's going on with FTX, which may or may not involve fraudulent activity. We don't know. But so there's very specific situation going on here that's confusing everybody. I, would you agree with the idea though that this is definitely a ding on cryptocurrencies, but not doesn't 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 destroy the viability of the blockchain concept.
2: Oh, absolutely not. I mean, we're in the early stages. You know, th- there's clearly going to be a period of maturation, but to your point, blockchain and defi is is absolutely here to stay. And Bitcoin for it's a, it's either a feature or a bug depending on your point of view is the pure play. It doesn't have utility on the blockchain, but it's a store of value and look If you want to have the sort of extreme view of things, uh, there's no gold standard for the dollar either anymore. Yeah.
1: Well, yes. However, I would like to back the full faith and credit of the United States over the full faith and credit of Bitcoin, of which there is none as far as I'm I'm aware, other than a a belief system around it. Deborah, I'm wondering how this might affect crypto ETF flows. Uh, This is your data. At the end of October, 162 products listed globally, 7.5 billion. This is crypto products. Um, is, are we going to see that change or does, that, does this change?
0: I think people are concerned, but I think you're right. We have to differentiate crypto products from the blockchain and smart contracts because we are seeing that being used for many things, including tokenizing private equity and allowing retail access. Right? There's a project in Europe where creations and redemptions for ETFs are being done by ETP link using smart contracts, where before they were being used using emails. So I think there are definitely applications and the technology is very different than crypto. Yeah.
1: I want to go back to your point earlier about the fact that there are Bitcoin ETFs elsewhere. There's in Canada, for example. How are the authorities handling it there? I mean, Gensler says, I need more control over exchanges. I have no regulatory authority. What is the status of the regulatory system there?
0: So basically, they went to the regulator in Canada and said the ETF wrapper is better than other ways of allowing investors to have access. And the regulator bought into that idea. And just like in fixed income, the crypto ETPs or ETFs in Canada have worked as well as they would if they were... And they're
1: regulated by the the, the Canadian Canadian authorities. Yes. And presumably... um, they, they're regulated, so they they operate under a set of, of rules and regulations. Obviously, similar to
0: 40 Act funds here. There's yeah. a set of regulations in Canada. They've been Canada actually has had ETFs for 33 years. We've had it here for 30. Yeah. So Canada.
1: So is there some argument that could be made? I'm just trying to flip this on its head and say, well, look, it is operating over there. Nobody's going to necessarily protect anyone from price declines. I think the problem here that Gensler is afraid of, which makes sense, is if this thing collapses, if Bitcoin goes to $1,000 or $500, five years from now, somebody's going to haul those people in front of Congress saying, did you approve Bitcoin for grandma? Because this is essentially making it available to the masses. And whether or not it's tested as a real asset class or should that be the standard? I don't know. And I I think it's interesting you point out Canadians are working on this. They're doing it.
0: I think the challenge is normally regulations in the U.S. are about disclosure, right? So you tell what type of disclosure needs to be available and then people decide if they're going to invest, right? Right. And that's the whole thing with FINRA talking about complex products. What is a complex product?
2: Well, I think with respect to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you know, what happens if if Bitcoin goes to a thousand? The issue isn't so much that we have disclosure rules. People can lose money and we have the ITI. You could take the short side. The question is, Would that what stress would that put on the exchanges if you were invested in the stock market, excuse me, in the Bitcoin exchange itself? And look, the money's coming out of the exchanges right now. People are worried about the commingling of assets and they're going back to these cold wallets where I have my flash drive. But the ETF fixes a lot of that, particularly when it's belt and suspenders with the futures market. Yeah, Um,
1: I want to turn to a different topic. Um, Simeon, uh, that ProShares is very involved in, and that is, I, and I get questions on this all the time. The, these incredible volumes in the in the ProShares long and short Nasdaq 100 and S and P 500 ETFs. It's an amazing business that you've got going here every day. Every day, I look at the heaviest volume ETFs by dollar value and just sheer volume, and these show up every time. ProShares Ultra Pro. QQQ here we're listing them here that's this is a uh, three times leverage That's f- the first one and the ultra pro short QQQ um, the uh, is ultra pro short QQQ um, so the, the these are amazing the uh, ultra short pro QQQ is three times inverse ultra short QQQ QID they don't have the symbols here it's two times the inverse the short S&P which is SH uh, is just a simple inverse Uh, every day, they have the biggest volumes here. Um, And we've talked often about these leverage and inverse products, how they reset every day, how retail investors should be careful. Can you tell us a little bit who's using these products exactly? I mean, the volume is so titanic that I want to see a use case for this. We tell retail investors probably shouldn't do this and hold them for long periods of time. But somebody's trading these things like crazy.
2: Well, there are a range of uses. We always talk about this. We're super proud to to offer the the toolkit to investors, both sides of the trade, depending on your point of view. I think when you look at a volatile market like this, one of the things that I'm sure that you, you notice is the divergence of views. Yeah, this is a time when there's some people who think this is—they you know, see the CPI print and they think that's only the beginning of the bull run—and then there's some other folks that say, "Man, I'm gonna—I'm gonna sell this after this rally." So I think that divergence of rule pro- of of views prompts folks to use these tools at a little more volume. And even in this environment, there are uses that are, are particular to right now and this time of year. As an example, tax loss harvesting. What if I'm about to harvest some losses on my high-flying tech fund? Well, I go harvest the losses. I can use a pro-shares long QQQQ, and I can have my exposure to the end of the year and figure things out later. Maybe, yeah. I guess, I've.
1: you know what I would like to do? I'd like to bring some big active traders on and show how they use this because there's got to be some relationship between, say, owning a sector like the NASDAQ 100, Owning options uh, and having different positions, there got, there's a clear trading vehicle that's possible here, and I, I would like to see a clear use case because the number, the volume is so big that it, this isn't just a bunch of retail people, you know, suddenly deciding they want to own GameStop on, on a day when GameStop's up three percent. This is very systematic, and there's a clear, there's some kind of trading methodology that exists and. I understand why some people don't want to tell us about it, but it it's very obvious, but also
2: simply the fact that you know we forget the the democratization is important, but also the fact that yeah. it's efficient. Even folks who could replicate that using the online instruments can often find you know our vehicles to be very efficient, and of course they trade all day long in tight spreads, so that makes it uh, efficient for a wide range of folks.
1: I try to get this out of him every time I bring <laughs> him on, and he always just talks to me about you know the diversity of people yes. using the place. You, you know, okay. So we we have often talked about. I call it the increased complexification of the ETF structure. I'm a Jack Vogel guy. I loved ETFs because indexing, it it made indexing possible for the masses. Indexing was the important thing that came first, that understanding back in the 70s, and then in the early 90s, we started getting a way to get those indexes through ETFs. So that's why I like ETFs, lower cost tax benefits, just better for the average investor. But things have been getting increasingly complex. As the industry has matured, they're looking for other sources of revenue. So ProShares has been the leader in and inverse ETFs. You can argue, do I need three times leveraged S&P or triple Qs? Does the world really need that? Well, he's made a pretty good business out of doing that. Um, Does the world really need three times leveraged oil funds? I don't think so, but there are people who think they can make a money, a business out of it. I don't know. Should we prevent that from happening? Uh, what would be the, the criteria if it was uh, some kind of uh, threat to the system, for example? But if it was a systemic threat, I don't know. Is there a standard that we should use about complexification of ETFs, like and single stock ETFs, another example?
0: I mean, it's a great question. So, FINRA did a consultation back in May to figure out how they should look at complex products. They want to think about how they should be defined. Should there be sales practices? Should investors have to attest to understanding the product before they buy? Should they have to have a certain level of assets? So right now, that consultation is ongoing. Um, I heard the head of FINRA speak recently, and he said, likely, if they were going to move forward and do something, they would not specify exactly what they are but there would be probably three more consultations before something was passed. So I think it is an ongoing issue that many of the regulators want to define this. Um, but what
1: complexification of, is. Well, like, what a complex product is. Should we separate, is? say, leverage and inverse products from regular ETFs
0: many into think, a different
1: product category?
0: Yeah, many think that should happen. I mean, in Hong Kong, they are different, so they don't call them ETFs, they call them LNI call them products. So regulators around the world have different views on many types. How of How would you feel
1: about that? Should it should they should there be a different asset class? Is it is it di- not an asset class? A, should it be a different category? Yeah,
2: we're a disclosure-based system. Yeah, you know, there are lots of things and lots of ETFs and mutual funds. We were just talking about bond ETFs. Many of them use derivatives to get their positions. So you know, disclosure is an important way to go. Is yeah.
1: another standard? In line that I keep getting. Despite stocks, I love him. He (laughs) stares at me, we get the same answer. (laughs) Despite stocks down 20% this year, let me turn to you as our ETF expert, uh, and bonds are down. The U.S. ETF industry, folks, you know this, it keeps breaking in assets. It never loses. We have 3,000 ETFs now in the United States, 3,000. We have assets of 6.3 trillion. This is Deborah's numbers, by the way. And we have 266 providers. You know how I know that? Because they all write to me. <laughs> Stop writing to me, please. It's remarkable. Now, it's, And it's not just mutual funds converting to ETFs. We still see that happening, but it still comes in.
0: Well, I think there was an interesting study that Charles Schwab did where they said that 15% of investors in the stock market a year ago were new investors. So you're seeing new people come into the market. I think many because of your show, right? During the pandemic, most people were watching CNBC, what's going up or down, and you were showing ETFs, right? People became familiar with them were putting money into them. I think the other driver is as people get close to retirement, and about 10,000 people do that every day in the US, they look at how they should be investing going forward. They go to Robo's. They usually don't put their money into the robo, but they use that to become familiar with ETFs, asset allocation, low cost. Then they call an advisor and invest money, typically in ETFs. So I think there's a number of drivers, but the biggest driver has been institutions using ETFs. If you look around the world, many countries will tell their pension funds when you want exposure outside of our own country, Mexico, Chile, Peru, Brazil, invest in ETFs because they're low cost, easy to use, Easy to get in and out of, and that's been a real driver yeah. for assets globally.
1: Yeah, I've seen that, Simeon, with the RIA business. Uh, you know, I go to these conferences, and you've got a lot of guys who are quitting Morgan Stanley and setting up their own shop, and they want to find the most efficient way to, to set up shop and keep the cost as low as possible. If you want to get below 100 basis points on a client, that's not easy to do, but you can theoretically pull that in, and there's a lot of RAs, they, they want 100 basis points, they want right. to charge. They don't want to charge 200 basis points, and they use ETFs. So the, the structure makes complete sense to me, and it's no—I'm not surprised that this keeps happening.
2: No, if you go back, you know, 10 or 15 years, and you were talking to an RIA financial advisor, and you'd ask the question, "Are you using ETFs?" we don't ask that question anymore <laughs> it's not a question everybody everybody uh, has converted their book to uh a, if not entirely but directionally towards etf let me ask
1: you about your biggest uh asset um, or your single biggest holding which is noble the uh, p nobl is the symbol folks which is the s&p dividend aristocrats index i guess you would call it uh this tracks the uh a, a basket of companies that are increasing their dividend year after year why is this the best strategy to own dividends and not just let's buy something that has the highest dividend yielding companies
2: it's it's an elegant strategy cuz all you gotta do is look for the companies that have consistently grown their dividends and noble tracks the s&p 500 dividend aristocrats that's 25 years in a row And I'll give you two reasons one because the dividends grow which sounds total logical but that's the key It is the quintessential inflation hedge those dividends have been growing 12 to 14% a year since the inception of that index number 2 is the high quality if you look at Q3 earnings they were non disastrous top line s&p 11% bottom line 3 nobles index top line 17 bottom line 26 they are delivering Margin expansion in an inflationary environment because they got pricing power. That's a big one-two punch, and that's why they've they've attracted a lot of assets. Yeah, and, and
1: ex- I, I keep expi- explaining this. Like people say, the S has a less than two percent dividend yield. Who cares? I said, let me tell you something. Historically, there is a big difference between a company that has a one and a half percent dividend yield and a two and a half percent over many, many years. Bogle used to do this in his books, say hey, this is 1.5% difference in a return over 30 years. When you start getting into hundreds of thousand of dollars, you get into the beauty of compounded interest, which is the greatest invention in the history of the world, which is that in the, in the early days, it doesn't look like anything. And then when you get older, all of a sudden you're 65 or 70 years old, and that difference is enormous. And it's very, this is a simple way I explain it to people. The other is people say, give us the highest dividends. You know, I want to buy this top, you know, five dividend. I said, those are not safe. You know, a a company that's paying you 9% dividend yield right now is probably in a somewhat precarious position position. And, you better be real and, and careful. And even
2: if it's 5 and it doesn't grow, you know what it is? It's a fixed coupon bond, totally exposed to inflation and any yeah. residual increase in rising yeah. rates we might see. Yeah,
1: it's a good point. I know we've wandered around a little bit here today, but we've got three experts on uh, two experts, excuse me, uh on uh big big topics. So that's why we have the best people here from the ETF business folks. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation with Simeon Hyman from ProShare. Simeon, thanks for sticking around and chatting with us. Uh, I, there's one little point you brought up uh, around uh, some of the strategies we were talking about today, and that is the possibility of tax loss harvesting uh, using ETFs. Now, for the viewers who aren't sure what's going on, we've got big losses this year. So there's a chance here that people will have some losses they they could possibly offset against gains, which is tax loss harvesting. Explain this briefly and how ETFs can be used in this manner.
2: Sure, Bob. There's there's two pieces here. One is the straightforward one, which you just described. I've got some losses, and I can take that as a credit on my taxes, sell those, but if I want to be still invested in the market, I want to reinvest those. Now you have to make sure you don't invoke the wash sale rule, but you have to buy something a little bit different but indeed, you can reinvest those in an ETF. So as an example, you know, you might uh, uh, have had a, uh, a long equity strategy that's lost some money. This might be a great time to harvest some losses and consider something like we've been talking about, ticker OBL, the S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats, as a nice place to have a growing dividend stream. And that way you can offset the tax, you can take the tax loss and then reinvest that in an ETF strategy. The other piece that's important too is if you are invested in mutual funds, they may have distributions yeah. before the end of the year even if they're down. And that's kind of a weird thing but it does happen in mutual fund land. You could be down for the year and actually have a distribution you have to pay taxes on. Well, well,
1: particularly if the fund was actively traded. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean you that's not going to st- save you. If they're trading a lot, you have then, capital gains. on, on, on And on there those. may
2: be an opportunity for some folks to not only harvest those taxes, but sell in advance of those is, is this those going to be a real
1: story? Do you think the mutual fund, we're going to be awash in stories in a few weeks about people who are going to be shocked to find out that in a year where their portfolio is down 20%, they're going to have additional uh,
2: uh, uh, capital gains distributions. I don't think we're going to have shocking headlines, but I think if you're listening to this podcast, take a look and you know talk and, and take a peek and see if that might be happening to some of your holdings. So I think it it will not be rare, but I don't know that it's going to be the big headline story.
1: well ProShares has been very successful in a very niche part of of, of the world, even though um, the dividend aristocrat Noble is your largest single holding. Cumulatively, you really are very big in the, the long and short S&P and triple Qs. That, that is the bulk of your assets at this point. It's been phenomenally successful. Is there anything else out there that can replicate that? I mean, obviously, you've gone where traders are going. And traders are interested in volatility. They're interested in QQQs, big, liquid, S&P 500, big, liquid. Um, what might, what other opportunities might be out there in the future?
2: Well, we're always looking to innovate. Uh, as you noted, we've got a toolkit of leverage and inverse ETFs. We have buying old strategies like the dividend growers. And we have, of course, our cryptocurrency ETFs, yeah. O and Biddy and, several, and a, a growing suite yeah. of thematic ETFs. So we're always looking to innovate across yeah. you know, all of those dimensions. I like, the, I
1: like this, you know, people brought up to me a couple of weeks ago, they said, look at this BITO, which is the one that you run, of course, uh, Bitcoin Futures, it's a disaster. It's down 75% since they introduced it. And I said, well, first off, it is a disaster from an investor point of view. Yes, if you bought and held, obviously it's a, it's a terrible return, um, however, from the point of view of the ETF issuer it 's been hugely successful it 's enormous product it had enormous liquidity, um, fairly expensive too uh, so uh, i don 't mean to sound cynical about this, but you can have a product that is in fact uh, not great from an investment point of view, but in fact it's something that everybody wanted and was very successful from a product point of view.
2: Well look, nothing goes straight up for sure. Um, We look at the you can't really know who's holding an ETF per se, uh, but we do get the sense that there's a a robust ecosystem of folks with different time horizons, certainly from the amount of assets in the fund. We know that there have been inflows as as Bitcoin has declined. uh, And we also know a couple of things about the way it's performed. Number one, we, of course, know that the volumes and the spreads have been tight. So that means if you do have a short-term time horizon, both bidding on the long side and bidding on the short have been very effective. But we also know we you and I have talked about the roll cost. The cost of, if you're holding BITO over time, the cost of rolling into those futures contracts in the futures market, that regulated futures market has gotten mature, and the roll costs have come down about 80 percent. They are now pretty much offset by the earnings on the cash in BITO, and it's tracking spot very well. So, we know that it's tracking spot for longer-term folks. We know that it's trading real well for people with short-term horizons. And look, Biddy's there, too, if you're still bearish.
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I I have to say, I've had differences of opinion on on the value of these leverage and and inverse ETFs over time. But you've been very successful in bringing out the products that people seem to want. And it was with BITO and BITI, regardless of the price movement. it was the right product at the right time it came in. Uh, Simeon, thank you very much for joining us. always a pleasure to talk with you. Simeon Hyman, folks, ProShares Global Investment Strategist. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the ETF Edge Podcast.
0: Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors, Inc.